Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Granddad. Tell me about that time, you know, when you were young in the 20 and 18s, when all the grown-ups in charge went bonkers and didn't know what they were doing and then resigned over all the things they did themselves and complained about things they hadn't even read and it was all silly and all the ridiculousness, you know, like you told me about before. OK, grandchild, but only because I know you like this story. Well, it all began on November the 13th, 2018, when... Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that laughs in the face of politics, only for this week, politics to say, oh, you think that's funny, do you? Well, hold my very expensive parliamentary wine and pass me that fan so I can tip this vat a very expensive parliamentary faeces at it in one swift move. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and as Prime Minister and lifelong citizen of the uncanny valley, Theresa May insists her unpopular Brexit deal is in the national interest. I want to know what's made her give a shit about the national interest now. I mean, it's like if I suddenly told you I'm all about the footballs I am, despite spending the last 37 years of my life actively shouting no fuck off at match of the day whenever it's on before changing the channel. Right, are you ready? You may want to pop this on 1.5 speed pod champs. Theresa May has finally proved that no deal is indeed better than a bad deal, but only in the way that before she'd come up with a bad deal, she had absolutely no deal and everyone had hated her slightly less as a result. On Tuesday night, UK and EU negotiators agreed a text on how to avoid an Irish hard border, and judging by May's plan that followed, I'm pretty certain that text was mostly poo emojis and a crying face. It immediately didn't look good for May as she failed to meet the deadline for a press conference she'd arranged herself. And that happened because the meeting that she'd had with the Cabinet to agree the agreement overran, probably because she kept having to say over and over again to disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox why he can't keep taking extra biscuits for his friend Adam. But the Cabinet agreed on the agreement and May announced the deal to Parliament while explaining that she owed the country to take decisions that were in the national interest, despite her never having said a word previously about Heinz nearly changing salad cream to sandwich cream or any comments on Holly Willoughby's lacklustre hosting on I'm a Celeb. Among other things, it's 585 pages. The agreement includes the EU getting the say-so on when the Irish border backstop would finish, which is picking the scab over the wound that Brexiteers have insisted they didn't need, despite their only solution being to get technology 
for that wound that doesn't yet exist, causing everyone to bleed to death first. Of course, while it took 872 days for May and the government to come up with an even vaguely coherent plan, it took mere minutes before Remainers and Brexiteers alike were complaining about it. Yes, the Prime Minister finally succeeded in bringing the country together by making everyone join as one to say just how shit she is. Emaciated sick chinstrap penguin Jacob Rees-Mogg said the deal would make Britain into a slave state, so no, I'm not really sure if it was a compliment or a gleeful hope either. Though, I suppose to be fair, he's probably way more of a fan of a nanny state. Leaking sandbag Boris Johnson said it's as bad as it could possibly get, which isn't true because that scenario involves him being Prime Minister. He also complained that for the first time in 1,000 years with this deal, we will not have a say over the laws that govern our country, which is an odd statement, not least because Parliament was only created in 1801, and also because it now seems like he's admitting we did have control of our laws until we left the EU, something we did because idiots like him said we had to, to get control of our laws. The DUP have warned that May's deal would lead to a breakup of the UK, and let's be fair, they know about divided countries, so maybe they can whiff the early warnings like a canary in a Dutch oven. And I have to say, at that point in the week, I had a feeling May's plan would be bad, but knowing it had already pissed off Boris, Jacob and the DUP, I did start to think, hmm, maybe it's not so bad after all. The curious thing was, at 585 pages, none of them would have read it in time to actually have an informed opinion that quickly. It used to be that if you hadn't done the reading, you'd get left behind in class, but here in 2018, it just seems to mean you get the best press coverage and a prime spot on Newsnight. Even former UKIP leader and current pig's bladder filled with bile, Nigel Farage, said he hadn't read the deal, which is wholly unsurprising, as doing research is as out of character for him as it would be if he suddenly gained the wherewithal to know when he wasn't wanted, which is, spoiler, all of the fucking time. But Nigel Farage still called that deal the worst deal in history, forgetting that actually that title should probably go to the EU, still having to pay him £78,000 per year as an MEP. And Labour also said they weren't happy, with Shadow Brexit Secretary and face drawn on a car spoiler, Keir Starmer, saying that it was a shambolic deal and that Labour will be voting against it because it doesn't meet their six tests, which we'll remember as being, um, being just like the single market but not being in the single market, being just like the customs union but also not, not having free movement but having free movement, being loud but without making a sound, moving fast while going nowhere and being absolutely impossible but full of possibilities. On Wednesday, the resignation started with Northern Irish Minister a disturbing 3D rendering of Penfold, Shailish Vara, quitting, which shocked everyone as they had absolutely no idea there was a minister with that name and were suddenly worried they'd accidentally sat on him at some point or hung a hat and coat on him in the past by accident. He was followed by Brexit Secretary and spam platter Dominic Raab, who left his post because he didn't like the deal that he'd helped plan. I mean, I say that, but Rob says he didn't help come up with this deal, which, to be fair, we all knew was the case whether he'd worked on it or not. The public are now very aware that the job of Brexit Secretary isn't actually to do anything, and there's every chance it wasn't until he heard the new agreement that Dom Dom Rob understood the importance of a UK-EU deal as part of making Brexit happen in the first place. After Rob's resignation came Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, Esther, my spirit animal is a rabid Pomeranian, McVeigh, who said May's Brexit deal doesn't honour the referendum result. You know, the result where people voted to leave with no details as opposed to remain as is. I mean, the only way to truly honour that would be a deal that simply said leave on it and expect the EU to know exactly what we want. Which, to be fair, based on examples of tourists abroad, feels very in line with British values. McVeigh also said the deal would bind the hands of the government, and based on her record as head of the DWP, I'm guessing she was upset by that, as she then have to say the deal was fit to work before punishing everyone when they didn't turn up due to mobility issues. 
Others also left and resigned, but let's face it, if I read out their names, you wouldn't have a clue who they are. I mean, look, hey, ego. Anyway, I'll do it. I'll do it anyway. Why not? You know, just throw them out. Um, there's David Chinstrap from the Department of Envelopes, uh, Owen Pinot Noir, a Ministry in Wall Fittings, um, Susan Trousers at the Ministry of Sound, and Steve Egg, who mostly sat in the hallway. Um, those aren't their names or jobs, but seriously, they may as well be. But weirdly, there were absolutely no resignations from some of the other usual suspects. And by that description, I mean the motley crew who really looked like a sort of botched criminal gang. You know, like a sort of broken anthill mob. Environment Secretary and flesh cauliflower Michael Gove was nowhere to be seen all day, prompting many to wonder, was he about to resign? Or did he just try to tear up May's deal, but at 585 pages, and with his weak arms like deflated uncooked bratwurst, had he just done himself an injury? No, instead it turned out he had been offered the position of Brexit Secretary to replace Rob, but he turned it down. Probably because Gove had realised that he'd already done as much damage as possible with Brexit, but the environment still wasn't hostile enough, so his job there wasn't done. According to his friends, which is already surprising news that anyone would willingly hang out with him without being paid, Gove was in a tortured position, which I think is the first time I've heard news about him that I like. So, Gove, disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox, Sad Wall Chris Grayling, Mother Andrea Ledsom, and cross between Kirsty Allsop and a QVC marathon Penny Mordant, all of them have decided to stay in the Cabinet because they think that way they'll have more influence. Interesting that as ardent Brexiteers, they all assume the best way to fix a damage system is to stay part of it and do it from within. Hmm. This group called themselves the Cabinet Pizza Club, which is a very weird name for a bunch of people whose ideas they definitely won't be able to deliver. The European Research Group, who are best at not living up to any part of their name, announced that they had more than enough letters to challenge May's leadership. And then, in yet another case of being unable to do anything that doesn't feel like a parody of what the problem with Brexiteers is, announced that they didn't have enough numbers, and then they said that they nearly did. So, when May announced a last-minute press conference on Wednesday night, she caused many to wonder if her position had been challenged, or was she about to quit as PM, or was she announcing a snap election, or maybe just that she had some new moves and was joining the Strictly Christmas special. But no, it was just to affirm her new deal and take questions on it. But, you know, in the sad, almost crying, wobbly way that she says absolutely everything. Theresa May's best skill does appear to be sounding like she's going to resign, even when she's promoting her plans. May warned that either MPs and the public back her deal, or it's no deal or no Brexit, which are the two scenarios that either side want, you know, rather than her deal. It's not much of an incentive for either of them to back her when you get given those choices. It's like trying to solve the Israel-Palestine situation by saying, hey, either back my idea for all this land to be owned by a dog called Gerald who's a bit stupid, or I'll give it all to the Israelis or all to the Palestinians. No, wait, hang on, I take that comment back. Gerald is a ledge and should totally be in charge. May's other tactic, as demonstrated at her speech at the Conference of British Industry, is really pushing home how her deal will, as she puts it, stop EU migrants jumping the queue, promising migration will be skill-based. Now, that's the sort of dog-whistle crapola that makes me sad, but thinking about it, if people are being allowed in in order to fill a skill shortage in specific areas, then there's every chance we'll have a government competently run by foreigners in no time. Amber Rudd, the woman who always looks like a shitty boss from a Linda LaPlante series, has been brought back to the Cabinet as the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, which seems like a perfect choice after her departure from the Home Office during the Windrush scandal. Every time someone brings up all the issues of the Universal Credit, she can just point out that she was completely unaware and wander off until someone else deals with it. And Steve Barclay has been made Brexit Secretary. You know, Steve Barclay from The Thing. You know, Steve, Steve Barclay, you know Steve Barclay? Steve Barclay, you know the guy who did The Thing with the, um, with the people and the stuff? Do you know Steve Barley? 
No, me either. Absolutely no clue. What I do know is that he looks like a stock photo for men's incontinence pads, and he was named by Conservative Home as one of a minority of loyal backbenchers who's not voted against the government in any significant rebellions. So, Steve got the job in the hope that he'll stay at his desk and shut up, and if anyone asks him what he does, he'll just repeat Brexit Secretary means Brexit Secretary on loop and never question the country's geographical status. At this point, it's looking like, and to be fair, this could have all changed by the time you've heard this, it's looking like May's leadership could still be challenged and her deal is going to be defeated in Parliament, you know, with Labour, Tory Remainers, Tory Brexiteers, the DUP, the SNP and your mum all saying they'll vote against it. Which in reality probably means some Labour MPs, very few Tories and the SNP will, but not your mum because we all know what she's like. Why does she do that? Why is she like that? And if it gets chucked out, then, of course, everything is going to go back to square one. And by square one, that could be as in before all this happened and therefore we're still in the EU, or it could be square one as in before the beginning of time, which is if we get a no deal. Meanwhile, Labour leader and Barney McGrew stunt double Jeremy Corbyn has set out his alternative, which is catchily being called, get this, a good Brexit plan. Clever move there, Jezza. This good Brexit plan protects workers' rights and environmental standards, as well as a permanent customs union that isn't the customs union but does the same as the customs union, which can't happen. Considering there is absolutely zero ways for Labour to push this through Parliament, they could just say what they want, but again, you sort of hope they'd be a little bit more imaginative with that kind of freedom. If I knew that there was no way my Brexit plan would get through, I'd be promising that everyone who wants to leave will leave, everyone who wants to stay will stay, and we'll all get free custard and a porcelain dog. On Sky News's Ridge on Sunday, Corbyn once again avoided backing a people's vote by saying it's an option for the future, but not for today. Because what would the question be? Cool. I mean, fair play, Jezza. I mean, why bother backing anything now if it's not immediately there and you don't know what the choices are? I'm guessing in the next general election, Corbyn won't back other Labour candidates or even himself as he can't 100% guarantee they'll be on the ballot because what if they get struck by lightning, fall into a black hole and are displaced to a different borough or are hospitalised by a falling cow beforehand? And lastly, US President and walking heartburn Donald Trump has received criticism for blaming the vicious California wildfires on poor forest management, which is an odd comment by someone who can't seem to manage his own government branches. Trump said that they should rake in clean leaves like they do in Finland to prevent such disasters, which they don't, and the Finnish president has denied ever saying that to him. But I guess it sums up Donald's presidency so far to say he foolishly assumes a simple tool can fix major issues. And stop that 1.5 speed now. Poor hey pod champs. Oh, I really hope you 1.5 speed that because that took that took ages. And thank you to Sam White uh, on Twitter for the suggestion. Um, how are you all? Knackered? I mean, knackered probably just from listening to that. What the hell was that? I can't believe that last week I said US politics were good for Schadenfreude when you think things here are shit. Jesus, did I jinx things? Was it me? Was it me? Oh, my bad, guys. I'm really sorry. I won't do it again. I got tired on Wednesday just watching the news. How is that even a thing? And more importantly, does it count as exercise? Because I could do it more often, I will be honest. Um, look, who knows how long this week's podcast will remain relevant for. Uh, last week, I think it managed a day before the Brexit fallout bit, well, uh, fell out. Um, there is every chance that I'll release this podcast in its usual midnight slot at 00.01 on Tuesday, and by 00.02, May will have had to replace six more members of her cabinet with those flowers that dance to the radio. Still, though, uh, it's all good for pod content, eh? Do you know what I mean? We're not without content this week. It's slightly too much. Um, speaking of which, while I'd love to fill this rambly admin bit with this week's ruminations on how all David Attenborough programmes could just be titled Watch Cute Things Die or how I went to see the film Widows and I feel a bit like the characters would have been better off financially at the end if they just had a Scottish teammate. God, that is a niche joke, isn't it? 
I don't know why I did it. I mean, do Scottish Windows even advertise anymore? Oh, see, this is why you're not on TV, do yeb? This is why. And that the past week's news could fill its own seven-part series, which I suppose it does, you know, on the news. Um, so, just a quick admin this week, and then much like people shout uh, when they too haven't got a clue what it is they want or how to solve that issue, let's get on with it. Um, thank you this week to the anonymous donator who donated to the Kofi account. Um, weirdly, I've realised that I get sent your email via PayPal, so even if you say you're anonymous... I've read your name, so I'm going to try not to shout out a name if you've specifically chosen not to give one on the Kofi. Um, I understand you may not want anyone to know you listen to this show. I mean, what if you get bullied about it at school, in the workplace, or more likely, Parliament? Um, but if you too want to buy me a coffee, please do so at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro, or you can do a more monthly thing at the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, where last week, you lucky people, I added the meagre bonus of the Liam Fox jingle for your own use. Yeah, I have... No idea where you'd use it, but I have been daydreaming about a civil servant who works in the Department for International Trade just playing it on loop in the office for an entire week. Oh, wouldn't that be magical? Um, If you can't donate, it's cool. Uh, You don't have to. I won't come round and demand you throw pennies at me until a debt is paid or anything. I mean, I don't know where you live, so I can't do that, which is primarily why. But if you can't donate, then please do give the show a review on the pod apps that do that reviewy thing, or tell people via the medium of words or emojis or smoke signals about this show so that they too can have a listen and go, God, what was that shit Scottish Widows joke all about? No idea. And last bit of admin um, is just that if you live in the Oxford area, Cat uh, Day, who's at Chronicle Flask on Twitter, she kindly does all the linear notes for this show so I can pop them on the website, which is hugely helpful and I'm very grateful for. Um, she is also an excellent uh, fiction writer, among many other things, and she's part of a storytelling show at St Aldgate's Tavern on Friday the 23rd, as in this coming Friday. Um, it's called Myth Making, and if you follow her on Twitter at Chronicle Flask, you'll get all the details. It sounds excellent, but sadly I can't go uh, due to not living in Oxford. Friday being my wife's birthday and me having to sift through enough made up myths just for the Brexit fallout bit of this week's show but you should totally go along if you can it's going to be great so Yes, Brexit Fallout is, of course, on this week's episode, but also there is a chat with Jen Pearson from Defend Digital Me on all the children's data that gets collected, and no, not just by Father Christmas. And, well, all the rest is about last week's Turdstrom that will in no doubt change tonight and then tomorrow. And, OK, OK, look, guys, I'll do a daily show. I, just stop asking me. If you just get me the budget, I'll do it. I'll do one every single day. What do you, hang on, what do you mean none of you... What do you mean none of you actually said that or asked for it? Oh, well, then... It was worth a try. And of course, before that, uh, let's have a slightly removed from Brexit, but still kind of about Brexit breather with some of this. Great misery has been inflicted unnecessarily. No, that's not a quote from a TripAdvisor review by someone who's been to Butlins, but it's what the UN Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights has said after visiting the UK for two weeks. And yes, that was even before the news last week, so fuck knows what he'd say after we were forced to go through that. Philip Ulston, the UN rapporteur, has written a 24-page report on poverty in the UK to be presented to the UN Human Rights Council next year in Geneva, and to say he wasn't pleased with the current state of things is an understatement. To be honest, I'd be amazed if the final page of his report wasn't just a recommendation that we all get evacuated and take refuge in Switzerland. Among other things Alston noted was that Britain is in breach of four UN human rights agreements relating to women, children, disabled people and economic and social rights. He said, and I quote, If you got a group of misogynists in a room and said how can we make this system work for me and not for women, they would not have to come up with too many ideas that are not already in place. 
Yes, that is what happens when you have a government in charge who put Philip Davis, the personification of incel, on the Women and Equalities Committee, and a Prime Minister who, in her last cabinet reshuffle, no, not the one this week, the one before, yeah, the one, not the one two ones ago, the one, uh, just one of them, in that one, promoted more people called Jeremy than women, which is especially galling considering the Jeremy's are Hunt and Wright, two men whose collective assertiveness is somewhere down the back of a sofa in a skip. Alston also criticised cuts to council budgets, the five-week delay in receiving universal credit payments, the increase in homelessness and food banks, and, well, pretty much every austerity measure the last two Conservative governments have put in place since 2010, with Alston saying that poverty is a political choice. And yes, that would be a much more honest slogan for the Tories to use at the next election, but sadly I can't see it happening. The government have, of course, said they completely disagree with the report, claiming yet again that household incomes were at a record high, which they are, but it still doesn't match cost of living increases, so it's like telling someone you've made them more dinner than normal, but also, while they were asleep, you gave them surgery so they've now got four cows' stomachs to fill. They also pointed out that income inequality had fallen, which it has, according to the Office of National Statistics stats, which ignore the incomes of the top 1% and how they're rising. The Department of Work and Pension stats, actually from the government themselves, say that income inequality is not at a 30-year low, but is at best flat and at worst rising. So the government have simply used the measurement that makes them look the best, which is something that teenage me totally and utterly sympathised with. <clears throat> OK, or OK, and adult me. The last line of government defence was that Universal Credit was supporting people into work faster, which it turns out they have no way of knowing as they've not put the right processes into place to find out, so they've just made that one up entirely. Which was also noted by Philip Alston, who said that all the ministers he met were entirely dismissive of criticisms of welfare changes and Universal Credit, instead blaming opponents for political sabotage or saying the media don't understand the system and it's unfairly been blamed. Which is a shame, as his report states that many problems could be fixed if they were only acknowledged by the government and considered his recommendations. But on the day his report was released, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions Esther McVeigh resigned from her position. This is a woman who was given top spot at the DWP after a career of making comments about how it was right that people had to use food banks and that benefit sanctions teach people looking for work to take it seriously. So fingers crossed that by willfully giving up a position of work, she's been handed an absolute ton of them. McVeigh's now been replaced by former Home Secretary Amber Rudd, who, judging by her previous record in Cabinet, won't be any better, but instead will probably try to forcefully deport anyone in poverty and pretend she knows nothing about it. And the sad thing is, I joke about that, but during her debut as head of the DWP in the Commons, she said she's certainly going to listen to charities and experts' criticisms of the universal credit rollout, and then immediately followed that hopeful statement by saying the UN report contained extraordinary political language that discredited it. Uh, I almost wonder if they get taught in the politics school. You know where they learn all the politics and do all the politicking. I almost wonder if they get told there that members of the public only have a one-second memory and that no-one apart from MPs have the internet. So, will this report make any difference? Well, it adds to the pressure the government are already under, and if that pressure builds, then Theresa May's promises that austerity are over will hopefully have to actually come true. Or, you know, maybe they'll just wait till after Brexit when income inequality will vanish because the pound will become just as worthless for absolutely everyone. Hopefully by the time Philip Olston presents this to the UN Human Rights Council next year, they'll overwhelmingly decide to bail us out and let us all seek refuge in Geneva. Fingers crossed. Now, I don't want to shock you, uh, but and I hope you're sitting, standing, squatting or hanging comfortably right now, but there are some other politics issues happening right now that, and take a deep breath, aren't Brexit. What? How 
can this be? I hear you cry. And you're right to cry because that is the only way through this period of politics so batshit that bat sanitary workers are disgusted by it. Yes, I know the correct term for batshit is guano. Yes, that was rather battist of me. I'm sorry, bats. And I had to say that as chances are they're listening. Look, uh, what I meant to say was that there are definite other important political news things happening. And one such political news happening was the release on November the 8th of the Children's Commissioner report into just how much children's data is being collected. And that's data about your children, not as in data that children have collected themselves. That would just be some weird report on how many shells were got on the beach and how many times they saw a squirrel, which would be pointless. Um, No, this is all the data on your kids that gets snapped up every time your weans watch screens or use a website or app and then data is collected by companies and another whole heap of info about them is hoovered up and saved by schools and other public services according to the report children or adults who act like children are posting on social media 26 times a day even though we all know they've got fuck all to say And then there's photos posted by parents, internet toys, there's cloud pets, which sound a lot like a nice way of saying your pets died. And all of those store and gather personal info, messages and recordings, which log your entire child's life in some sort of database so they can be sent appropriate Nectar Points vouchers in the future. Or it could be used against them when applying for a job, credit or insurance, because everything, everything will be on file. For example, if as much data had been collected when my brother was four years old, then it's likely it'd be logged that when asked what he wanted to be when he grew up, he'd say... God, so I can rule stuff, silly. Genuinely did that. And if that had been the case, it's likely now he'd only be able to work as a contestant on The Apprentice. But what did the report recommend in order to protect children's digital rights? Did it go far enough? Are there things we can do now besides giving our children some slate and chalk for their birthday and insisting to them that electricity is the work of the devil? And can parents download their entire children's backlog to use to embarrass them in front of prospective girl or boyfriends when they're older? So to answer some of those questions this week, I spoke to Jen Pearson at Defend Digital Me, a non-profit, non-partisan group who are experts in data protection, data privacy, freedom of information, biometrics and child rights. They campaign to make all children's data safe, fair and transparent, which, as any parent will tell you, is a very important thing to do. And now, as I'm saying this, I'm really, really wishing I hadn't just posted a pic of my daughter on Instagram, but it has got 33 likes. So, you know, that's pretty good. Jen is the director of Defend Digital Me, and she kindly answered my many questions and gave me some very handy advice about what the report means, what her campaign would add to it and what we and that's parents and non-parents and children and non-children can all do to ensure that the Matrix doesn't get a head start on the next generation which, spoiler, does include me probably not putting pictures of my daughter on Instagram. It's like 33 likes. Oh, and uh, just to say, at the end of the second bit of this interview, the recording suddenly sounds slightly different, and that is because Jen thought of another recommendation that she wanted to make and so sent it to me after we spoke, which is brilliant and lovely that she did such a thing. Um, But that's why it sounds a little bit different. So don't you send me all your complainy letters, all right, uh, which I will log and I'll keep uh, for use on file against you at some point in the future. Um, Anyway, hope you enjoy this. Here is Jen. Why was the Who Knows uh, What About Me report by the Children's Commissioner necessary? Um, And just how much data about children is being collected and by who? Who's getting this and and how are they doing it? The Children's Commissioner report is really timely, especially coming out after all the um, discussion around Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. And we realised, I think, the public that we don't know who knows what about me. Um, We don't know which apps and companies are getting data through Facebook or any other platform or apps that we sign up to. So it was great. She's highlighted not only how much children's data are collected by um, commercial companies and uh, the, the media picked up the social media companies and how much of Generation Tagged find that even their parents are 
putting their photographs onto social media from birth. But she she looked at kind of how how much education has been uh, how much data has been collected across the education sector across health in GP records um, and tried to give people a bit of an idea of how datafied children are today and that they're really the first generation of being datafied from birth and pointed out that we don't really know what the effects of this is yet. So some of that is data that as you said that the parents are just I mean I, I've taken pictures of, of my daughter and put them on Instagram and that sort of thing is already kind of logging their life from day one in, in the kind of online world able for anyone to see it. Yeah, it's fascinating how uh, people's opinions differ on this. And there's no right or wrong answer, but I think people are starting to become more aware that when you post a a photo on a social media platform, it's not just something that you're sharing with your friends, even if you've set your privacy settings quite high, because Facebook has access to all that information and can share that with their partners and affiliates. And they're only just starting to reveal actually how the wide extent of how how big that network has been that you just don't see. So even when some of these uh, social media companies are saying you've got high privacy settings, you actually don't know what you've agreed to and you haven't agreed freely, but they've taken all this information anyway. So one of the things we interestingly talk to young people about sometimes is how um, they realise that they are surveilled by companies that are um, or potential hiring uh, for future jobs and they'll say we know already that if there's something we don't want a future employer to see we probably shouldn't post it on a on any sort of social media page because we know that they will scan it when we apply for a job and actually young people are starting to be much more switched on and savvy about how it's being used then I think sometimes parents perhaps of my sort of age um, even are ourselves because we were the first people that used Facebook without really thinking about it. Sure, it absolutely doesn't surprise me that children are more savvy about this than parents are. <laughs> um, but, but you mentioned as well that obviously, that, you know, while we don't know how these photos are being used and things, there is some element of control in what parents are putting up. But you said that schools are collecting lots of data on children as well. And I guess that's much more out of parents and children's control. Yeah, and, and also the question is, you know, how much should be pushed back to children and parents' control um, when... If you're using a company's tool, you know, they have a responsibility to treat you fairly. And that fairly approach is a fairness approach is about you understanding what is expected, you know, that you only got your reasonable expectations, how they're going to use your photograph or your name. Are they going to... um, add your information to other information they've bought from data brokers so companies like Experian and Axiom and companies that do credit scoring sell information back to other companies and these these data get joined up behind the scenes Um, sometimes we talk about you know data is semi-anonymous or pseudonymous and it can't be identified but as soon as you jigsaw all these different sources of information together and put them together as a profile of you it's really identifying so what we're concerned about in schools is that a lot of the time children don't have any choice over what information is collected and parents aren't really told about it so you've got the the companies that are into schools uh, getting access to schools information management systems and they collect children's names and date of birth and age and address and all the things you'd expect about a child their usual personal data 
but it also includes like your parents' email address. And increasingly, developers are getting parents' emails addresses out of the school management systems, and then they can send parents a, a marketing campaign or an advert about a product that the app is then going to promote as part of the child's homework tool. So while the school teachers signing the child and, and the parent up as being able to, to use a behavioural reporting tool or a, a sort of platform where you can see photographs of your child's school day and you think this is great because mum, granddad, you can show what your child, especially young children at four and five when they're just starting, can kind of see what they're getting up to in the day and photographs of their paintings and lovely things. At the same time, that is giving perhaps often your your opening you up to, as a parent to being marketed at in the comfort of your own home or on your phone. And we think that's really unfair. And that's the kind of practice that should be banned in schools, that children and parents are not being open and opened up to marketing just because they're in school. Absolutely. That's quite terrifying. And, and I mean, uh, also, obviously, you mentioned earlier sort of how we're seeing it with, with people now with jobs and, and being wary of what putting online. If if a child's behavioural record is online or and being sold from, from day one, that could well affect them in later life and, and I guess, in theory, be used against them in future jobs, etc., etc. Yeah, there's some really interesting stories starting to come out. And I think who knows what about me is a really good title for this report, because I think there's a kind of question we're only really starting to ask and parents need to be asking. Um, but we also need companies to be much more transparent about what they tell us without us having to ask. So if you're... Um, your, your, your school is using a, a behavioural app and it's tracking what points they got when they went in. Did they go in quietly? And they can get a little green mark or a red mark against their name. It's not just about it being used by the companies, but also in the classroom and how it's affecting the children. And we haven't really got any research or understanding of that yet because it isn't really widely understood how much it's used. So if children are being sort of shown up in front of their classmates um, or sort of embarrassed because they get a boing off their screen when they have perhaps talked to their friend and that they get sort of shamed really in front of their class. Um, you know, is that fair? Is that a good way of treating children? Um, there's other, other uh, people have said, you know, other teachers have come to us and said we're concerned because that recording through that tool is then available to all the teachers across the school and sometimes you might find it's an opinion rather than really a fact that was recorded. It's somebody didn't like that somebody was doing something rather than it was particularly bad behaviour. And how much do those things, again, build up on one particular child? And are there biases and discrimination being sort of built in to that recording? And then teachers are coming to us saying, well, I'm really uncomfortable that I'm seeing, you know, some data being built up about some children that's really I possibly shouldn't be seeing from one of their classes and it's different from how it used to be where if things were recorded mainly on paper and reporting that if there were really important issues they would be properly discussed between teachers and you'd know of issues that mattered so safeguarding or home issues or real you know behavioral issues that needed to proper attention but these are can be quite insignificant things that are recorded nowadays and they said it's building up a sort of very opinion-based profile and we're concerned how that's affecting children in the class and affecting their teachers and and then perhaps not giving a very good full picture of their overall personality and just sort of one side of people's opinions of how they are.
Yeah, that's that's really worrying. And, and as you said, obviously, it affects teachers as, as well. And then probably the way in which they teach and the way in which they have to be, uh, you know, bring their own personality into the classroom and things like that, you know, because that must all be on, on record too. And, and I just want to ask, you know, obviously that um, uh, some of this requires parents' consent in schools, but generally a lot of people you know this is something that uh, if if i hadn't known known about your campaign and things through twitter i don't think i'd know about this why are people so unaware at this mass level of um data collection yeah um it's mainly because in schools there isn't any need for consent to collect this type of information so schools that are just uh, on a day-to-day basis teaching your child they get given information by you actively when you register your child for a school so you go through the admissions process and you tell them your personal details and that you're their parent and they capture information that you've given them but after that most of the information that's added to a child's record is created by the school and there isn't a consent process for that because it's seen as part of what's called the public task you know it's part of a school's obligation to understand and record attainment attendance behavior special educational needs Um, And that information then over the years has had lots and lots of legislation and laws passed, um, especially in the last six years, by the government that's collecting ever more of that data at national level. And it's collected on a named basis so that at national level, they've got a national pupil database now that has built up a record of people's named school careers from 2 to 19 um, at Uh, for over 23 million people. So they've got huge databases sitting at national level. And now, um, because we don't know they're there, we don't go and ask, what have you got about me? You know, what have you stored? What does it look like? So a lot of the time, because we don't know what's there, we don't go and ask for it. Um, We carried out a survey, actually, in in spring, and we found that only uh, about 50% of parents in state education... Um, think they have enough control of their child's digital footprint in schools. And over a third simply had no idea how many apps their child was signed up to. They just hadn't asked because they didn't get told. So we'd really like that to start changing, that schools, uh, you know, there's so much challenge right now in the school system. They've got lack of funding, lack of teachers, uh, lack of, you know, too much workload. So some of these things we'd like to see a bit less data collected and it would help schools perhaps manage workload, but also that they do have to start having a way of telling parents and children what's there. Um, And the Department for Education really needs to step up to the plate and deliver a way of answering those questions when parents go to them, like me, and says to the Department for Education, what do you hold on my Uh, daughter and who have you given it to and at the moment they can't do that properly they don't have a uh, a good way of showing you exactly which company your data has gone to they do have a list on their website they they track a long excel spreadsheet um, and you can uh, look that up uh, uh, on the department for education external data shares and you'll see a long long list or you can look at our website at defenddigitalme.com and uh, look at the frequently asked questions and we expose some of some of where that data is going but i mean there have been some movements towards changing this because i know department of education uh, now uh, has sort of uh, stopped schools from uh, requesting nationality 
data from children, haven't they, which came into force um, earlier this year. Is that a move in the right direction? Was that was that enough? <laughs> is, is this a kind of sign that they are changing how this works? Um, we'd like to think so, but that collection was scandalous. I mean, that was, I will say quite bluntly, a lie from start to finish. So we were told in the summer of 2016 that nationality was to be collected to help better understand the impact of immigration and education, to use the DFE, Department for Education's own words. And that was simply not true because it was already included in a data sharing agreement written down in black and white that was going to hand over nationality as part of data sharing between the Department of Education and the Home Office every month. And they still hand over children's name, gender, date of birth and home address and school address every month when the Home Office asks them for matching on children's data for immigration enforcement. So, yes, they've stopped collecting nationality. We think that's a great thing. But now we really want people to um, ask their MPs. And we've realised it's a really bad time because they're incredibly busy. But we think children's rights really matter. And especially before Brexit, assuming if whatever happens next that data should be destroyed. So nationality data is still sitting at the Department for Education and we think we need to have get rid of that data, not only at national level but at local authority level because we know people are already asking for it at local authority level and we think it's really um, time that if they've recognised it was wrong to collect it, they should now recognise that it would be right to destroy it. So we want to ask people to basically take those encourage their MPs or the local councillors to ask questions and and say can we get that data removed now that it's no longer collected and uh, I know that uh, a defendant told me you had some criticisms of the um, children's commissioner report too because uh, uh, am I correct to think that you just uh, you said it was good but it didn't quite go far enough so what should it have said what did what did it miss out yeah, it made some good recommendations, um, including that schools should have responsibility to start educating pupils um, about the importance of looking after their personal information. But it didn't go far enough to say, and schools should also be telling children and parents how they use their information themselves. Um, it made a good recommendation for companies, for example, you know, producing apps and toys and other products. Um, to say, you know, we need more information. But again, you can't expect children to understand what a, a to an internet-connected toy will collect. Um, and there's a really good report um, by the Norwegian Consumer Council came out called Toy Fail. And in the run-up to Christmas, it's a really good time actually to take a look at that if it's something that interests you and really understand how internet-connected or smart toys, as they're called, really work and, and there's sort of type of information they're collecting you know if they have voice recorders they're always on they're listening all the time for commands from the child so they're picking up not only what the child says but anyone else in the room um, how hackable they are how um, easy it is to then speak through the toy potentially to the child from outside um, and the transcripts of everything that's recorded and sent to a number of companies like you know Mattel's Hello Barbie um, and uh, they so they yeah that Norwegian Council report Toy Fail really covered some of those issues pretty well um, but the uh, report from the Children's Commissioner um, also covered things like uh, you know, the government should consider an obligation on profiling to be much more transparent and 
that kind of thing, um, we think, particularly for children, again, is, is really important. The children shouldn't be being profiled at all in the ways they are today from, from very early age by companies or by the public sector. Um, and there's things that the commissioner's report picked up how children's health data are being used, um, which again were really important, but they didn't go, I think, far enough to say uh, to offer people really good understanding of what rights they have as well. So it was good at raising the issues, but for example, right now the NHS is uh, ha- offers an opt out, which is new to parents and children if you don't want your health records to be sent to a national database and linked with lots of other uh, health data about you and potentially linked across other data like education, DWP, your tax records. And you can choose to opt out of that, but you've got to actively know to do that. Um, And one of the hard things at the moment is that parents have got to, they can opt themselves out online, but if you want to opt your children out, you've got to download a paper form to do it. So we think those sorts of things the report could have been a little bit more critical of and, and pointed out that you know the government needs to take accountability for fixing some of their own data collections and the kind of tools they offer. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we'll be back with Jen in a minute, but first, and oh god, this may last a few hundred years. Yep, it's. Yes, and just for you, um, I'm going to read each of the 585 pages of the Brexit agreement, but in a silly voice. Yeah, are you ready? Great, let's go. Um, explainer for the agreement on the withdrawal of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland from the European Union. 14th of November, 2018. Ah! 1.1 summary. 1. The United Kingdom has now reached agreement in principle on the withdrawal... Oh, that is enough of that. 
Though, if you suffer from insomnia, drop me a line with a price and I'll do the whole eight and a half hour lot just for you. Um, or, you know, just join the Patreon and I might release some of it on there if I get bored enough this week. But if I'm not going to go through all of it, how will you know why everyone's so angry with May's plan? Well, never fear, chums, because I'm here with my keen skills at having nothing better to do. To inform badly about all the things so you can sit around the dinner table with your family and drive them to tears as well. What's wrong with the agreement? Well, I'm glad you asked. Firstly, it signs the UK up to a transition deal, which is needed because loads more work has to be done and still no one has a clue about most of it. Small reminder, this agreement is just so we can begin all the talks about all the other agreements. It's basically a gateway agreement so we can just get off our rocks on Class A trade chat after we scoff down this toss that's cut with all sorts of bad ideas. So, all call for a transition period, but at the moment it's till December 2020, but it could be extended, and like 2 Unlimited, the agreement has no limits. Which still doesn't make sense. I mean, how could they be called 2 Unlimited if they had no limits to how limited they could be? They wouldn't just sort of be just unlimited then, right? Isn't that how it... Anyway, sorry, we could essentially be in transition for a very long time, and the agreement simply states that the deal covers until 20XX, which could be the government's way of appealing to resmog by writing 20, uh, 20 again in Latin, or maybe it's anticipating that Brexit will set us back in time in terms of progressiveness and maybe that's to the year 20 and then they just added some kisses. Either way, we do know it won't cover us until the year 3000, which is why Busted only sang about the aftermath with all the flooding and stuff. European chief negotiator and your girlfriend's scary dad, Michel Barnier, has suggested extending it until 2022, which hasn't yet been agreed by the EU27, who are waiting to see if the UK government agree at first. Except they might not agree it because Brexit is one out right now and 2022 isn't now. And of course, Remainers want out never and 2022 isn't never. And overall, we'll still be under EU rules until transition is over, but not being able to have a say in them, but still somehow paying for them. Great. I mean, this agreement is both the only in-between ground that seems possible to sort of please or anger both Remainers and Brexiteers, but it also suggests to me that if May was trying to negotiate releasing hostages from armed gunmen, it'd end up with her exchanging herself to get a potted plant freed and the gunmen still getting a bag of cash as well. There also could be a goods check in Northern Ireland, i.e. a sort of hard border that's a bit squishy in places. It's kind of like when I tried to tense my stomach. This is if the backstop plan kicks in, which it probably will because that's there as an insurance plan in case they don't seem to find a solid plan for how not to have a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. But it's taken over two years to come up with a plan for being able to have a plan, so let's face it, not anytime soon. And if that backstop kicked in, then firms in Northern Ireland would have access to the single market for industrial, environmental and agricultural goods, meaning someone's going to have to be checking all those things as they head over the border, otherwise all sorts of smugglings could be happening. And the DUP are crazy livid about this because it means they're still sort of part of the EU, which is bad because they want to close all their borders, but they also don't really want a border. And I'm starting to think that really all this should have been managed by a skilled nursery leader with a large supply of lollipops and shiny foil paper. Also, this backstop, the one that I just mentioned, the UK, if it happens, can't just stop it willy-nilly. It has to be agreed between the UK and the EU, so again, it could be a really long ting. Oh, and any judgments involving EU law made by the European Court of Justice during the transition period will then be binding in UK law. So you remember all that sovereignty that was banged on about by the Leave campaigns that they wanted to gain even though we already had it? By leaving and getting this deal, it now means that we definitely won't have it for as many years as needed until we sort our shit out. So no, no wonder no one's happy, but at the same time, it does feel a lot like if you kick your toys out of the pram enough, then a dog will steal them and eat them and shit them out by some disused railway tracks, and when you get them back eventually, you'll be a lot less happy about playing with them again. But you have to, because that's what you wanted. Have your shit-covered, chewed-up rattle. Have it. 
Oh, and there's also a bit about fish that everyone thinks is total carp. There's also the whole Gibraltar thing. There's the fact that Scotland and Wales aren't even really mentioned. And there's protected status for Parmaham and Champagne, as well as 3,000 other products in return for Mowbray, Port Pies and Whiskey to get the same in the EU. Yes, EU, we'd like your finest products, and in return we hope you'll appreciate feeling like a lonely trucker in a lay-by somewhere near Derby. So now, what next? Well, this deal has to get signed off by EU officials this weekend, which it might do, and then it's got to face the Commons, and it's very likely if it gets over that hurdle, it won't call in Jackson the next one. May's own MPs don't like this deal, the Brexiteer or the Remainer ones, let alone MPs from any other party. And then you've got the fact that the Tory party is completely splitting anyway, because you've got the ERG Brexiteers hating all the Brexiteers who decide to stay within their cabinet positions. And then you've got those Brexiteers also disliking the Remainers within the party. And then you've got the Labour Brexiteers disliking the Labour Remainers in their party. And the Lib Dems just wishing anyone liked them and absolutely no one liking Michael Gove. So what's it going to be? Well, either there's going to be a new deal in some stupidly short amount of time, which absolutely no one has faith in the possibilities of. Well, except Shadow Chancellor and, oh God, someone spin-drives Steve Martin, John McDonnell, who thinks Labour could get a new deal with the EU within three months, which of course he'd say, because they won't get a chance to try it. You know, it's very similar to what UKIP leader and escaped old fairground fortune teller Gerard Batten said as well. Oh, I could do it over a cup of coffee, old melty face promised. He'll never get near a cup of coffee in Brussels, mainly because if people see him walking around the Belgian capital, they'll either assume he's a performance art piece and surround him or find their children and hide indoors until whatever spell created him makes him disappear again. And Labour's deal is very similar. They say they don't like May's deal because it doesn't meet their tests, but their tests include having the exact same benefits of EU membership, which you can't have unless... And you can sing this one with me if you know the words. You can't have unless you have EU membership. When asked why the EU would give Britain the exact same benefits, especially as Jean-Claude Juncker said that couldn't happen, Corbyn said, well, that was his view and we have a different view. Yes, one that you're looking at through glasses that seem to block out any important rules that you have to abide by. Similarly, Labour's idea that they can negotiate a new deal in three months seems to include knowing that the transition period is there, so giving them extra time for an even better deal. Sure, except the transition period only happens once you have the deal that you'd need to negotiate in those three months. So... Without some sort of magic cream option, the other possibilities we have, if May's deal gets blocked in Parliament, are either no deal or possibly no Brexit, which the Supreme Court and judges from the Court of European Justice may make easier on Tuesday as they're going to decide whether Article 50 is reversible or not. They can decide on that day if the triggering of Article 50 is set in stone and we have to go through with it, if Parliament can reverse it with EU consent, or if Parliament can just reverse it all by itself, which I assume all the Brexiteers are really backing for because that's proper sovereignty. With several Leave-supporting MPs saying that May's deal is worse than remaining, if the court decide we can still do that, maybe they'll just not bother with any of this after all. The Department of Exiting the EU are trying to argue that this doesn't need to go to European court as it's hypothetical since the government have stated that they won't revoke Article 50 either way. But with a lot of the hypothetical possibilities coming to fruition over the last few weeks, the court may disagree. I mean, let's face it, no one knew we'd be here by this point this week. So how the fuck are the court meant to know if anything is hypothetical anymore when everything is being run by a government who could seamlessly be replaced by a worst case scenario random generator? In the meantime, May's already managed to get businesses to back her deal by talking about stopping EU citizens from jumping the queue, which has, in turn, made the EU much less keen because it seems like they're dealing with a racist. So, what next? A new deal, a no deal, no Brexit, a snap election, a new referendum, or quite simply, will everyone just keel over and shout fuck it so loudly it makes everyone in China jump at the same time, triggering a tsunami and wiping out a large chunk of the globe so none of us have to bother? No idea, but I'm going to take a gamble and pop my swim trunks on and hope for the best-case scenario. And now, back to Jen. 
absolutely because it was it was mentioned uh yesterday i believe there's sort of a, again hidden away under all the brexit news about um one of the big health technology developers that is used by the nhs has been absorbed into google which means that google will now have all the data <laughs> that they collect which is is something that uh, you know again very couple of tiny articles hidden away but how will most people ever know that yeah you're right and it was pretty scandalous at the time. That was 2016. Google DeepMind had uh, extracted 1.6 million patient records from London hospitals. And there wasn't a consent process at the time. And they only later had a public engagement event where they'd got caught out, really. And we asked them, you know, what's in it for Google? And they wouldn't answer that question. And now a couple of years later, they're muttering about how it you know, how it will be used in future and the relationship between these big monopoly companies that have perhaps bought up smaller companies and how um, data could or could not be used by them. So it's the kind of question that people need to be asking any time they're handing over their personal data to commercial companies, but also to, you know, in the health service, in the education service, is to start to question a bit more, you know, what's in it for the company? Why, if I'm handing over this information for free, you know, or getting a service for free, what are they going to do with it? Um, but we also need you know, the, the regulation side of things to make sure that it doesn't just go back to the individual because children in particular haven't got capacity or time or understanding to be asking those questions. I was going to ask you just to be contrary to say, you know, isn't this just... Uh you know, is this just how technology is going? Shouldn't we just kind of embrace this? But I, I think, as you point out, that we can still embrace this, but it's there still needs to be limitations on our on our safety and our data. What, one of the things the Information Commissioner pointed out last year, she said, you know, innovation and privacy do not, uh, you know, are, they are compatible. Um, you know, innovation should not be seen as coming at the cost of privacy. Um, everyone has a right to privacy. It's up to companies and those people that want to use data to do it safely and fairly and transparently. And they have an obligation to do that. So we have rights to not be exploited and to be treated fairly. And the fact that we've kind of got to the situation we are in now, where we're finding our data are not being used as we want and possibly... You know, an insurance company is um, offering a discounted rate for children that have got better exam results. Um, you know, that's discrimination. And how have we got to that? Well, it's only because we didn't really know what they were doing in the past. You know, how have we got to the fact that Facebook's having to come out and say, well, actually, these are all the companies we've given you data to and we're going to change? Well, their business model is entirely dependent on that. You know, are they really going to change or have we just got to start being a bit more savvy about, um, you know, companies, business models are built on how many people they can grab their attention for how long because they sell that attention time then to advertisers. They can say to advertisers, you know, we'll be able to get your advert in front of X number of thousands of people for a certain amount of time. And that's why some of these systems are designed to keep you clicking or to keep you scrolling down a page and not break and have to click away. Um, some of these design features are very intentional about keeping you there for longer. Um, so yes, a lot of how information is used is really important. And that's actually why it's important that it's used well. 
so that we can keep trusting the companies to use our data well, that we can use an online service to buy things or trade or uh, exchange information with our friends, knowing that it's safe and secure. And we're not going to find ourselves you know, limited in the options we get offered when we go to buy something because they got offered a better deal down the road because they've got a different postcode, you know, or your profile says that you shouldn't get offered this type of airline flight. You, you'll get offered a slightly more expensive one. You know, those kind of things, we don't see how the systems work. So we need to know that we're not being discriminated against, that our information is used safely, and that we can trust especially public services. So in education, in health particularly, everyone needs to know that whatever information I hand over about me is going to be used well, it's going to be used safely, and that they keep using the service because it's in everybody's best interest that children go to school or that people who are sick, no matter who they are, are treated properly in the public health system and that we don't have people going around too scared or not able to afford to get their medical conditions treated um, because that just harms everybody. So the very important question then is what can any parents that are listening to this or in fact not just parents people in general what can they actively do uh, to take care of children's digital rights what would you recommend? The the Children's Commission report had some good you know thinking around what can parents do and part of it is that starting to have a bit more awareness about what you're doing yourself you do have to take responsibility for what you're posting yourself um but the the other part of that is to start being a little bit more uh, critical perhaps of of how companies are using information and not just uh, click accept on everything and at the moment that can be a bit more burdensome you can have a bit more friction you don't have to um just fly from one page to the other but make sure that you agree that you properly understand what's what's going on um children's rights in terms of terms and conditions should be changing so if a child is using an app for example the terms and conditions should be clear and able to be understood by that child and if they're not people do have a right to complain about it now sometimes people aren't very good at complaining in the UK we we sort of tend to grin and bear it but actually it will be helpful if we start to do that because the information commissioner's office um, has a complaints process and you can register it very quickly and easily online and point out where you know an app or a tool that's collecting information about children doesn't have a good terms and conditions because at the moment that's then not lawful it's part of the new um, support for people's rights under gdpr that we should be able to understand how information is being used and if you find that it's not being used how you expected you can uh, also make a complaint and try and encourage then other companies to be seeing you know how but if through through learning what's not working, we can actually make better pro- process for everybody. Um, and people in, in schools, you can certainly, for children, anyone, if you're under 36, your information stored in, in the National Pupil Database at the Department of Education. So you can make a subject access request. That means um, look on our website and uh, you'll see my records, my rights, and you'll see the email address to use and a suggested template. Um, and you can send them an email and get at least some of the information they hold on you today and encourage them to to start taking that process a bit more seriously. And also at schools, you do as a parent have a right to ask schools, please can you show me a list of the information you hold about me so that I can correct it if I need to. 
and also where you've given that information. So which companies and apps and third parties you've given it to. So um, we're also looking at uh, one of the other option, uh, topics that came up in the Children's Commission report was biometrics. And one of our colleagues, um, Pippa King, who runs an organisation called Biometrics in Schools, is doing some great work at the moment. Um, and uh, Can I just ask, uh, let me just, yeah, uh, sure. so can you just explain what biometrics are to an idiot like me? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, the Children's Commissioner report talked about biometrics as well. And by that, in schools, it can be anything from collecting your child's fingerprint to their handprint um, to their eye scan um, and using some sort of part of your body as a recognition mechanism of who your identity is and who, that you are who you say you are um, and that's irreplaceable you've only got one fingerprint and a handprint that looks like yours and we know for example an Oxford nursery was already using handprints for two-year-olds to uh, allow them into the building to access uh, their place at the nursery. Um, we know about 70% of secondary schools now have biometric fingerprint readers to buy your canteen lunch or to take out a book from the library or some to use lockers. And uh, one of our colleagues, P Pippa King, who runs a group called Biometrics in Schools, is encouraging parents, particularly in Scotland, to start paying a bit more attention to the biometric readers in schools because there's no safeguards around uh, that in, in Scotland for children. In England, if your school starts to use biometrics, you're meant to be, you have to be, under the law, asked for a consent process before they could collect it. And if a child or one parent objects, that non-consent, that refusal, overrides anyone saying, yes, it's okay. Um, and that means the default is that the least information is collected and it's most secure and you reduce your risks. Um, and the schools have to offer an alternative. But we, we'd we found out in our survey that parents who where their, their schools were using a fingerprint reader 38% of them said, our school's using fingerprint readers, but we weren't asked for consent. There was no choice. So obviously, although that's the law that they have to be asked, it's not always working. And again, we need school governors and uh, school staff and you know people that are introducing these systems to be a bit more alert to why it matters and really question, I think, you know, is it a necessary, proportionate way of collecting something that's irreversible, that's only irreplaceable, um, and you're collecting from children in a very, very young age? And if you were fingerprinted in school, it might be a good time to go back and just drop them a quick email and say, can you tell me, have you deleted it? Do you still hold my fingerprint from when I gave it to the school? And if so, you know, why and where have you sent it to? And you've got a right now to, to ask for that to be removed because the school would no longer need it. And the other thing parents should be asking schools about is how their web monitoring tools work. So today in schools, they use a software which can be installed on school computers, but also on bring your own device. That means if you've brought your own phone or laptop or iPad into school, sometimes the school will impose a software on it. And they're monitoring how children use everything that they type, everything that they 
put onto a keyboard and how those words can be matched to uh, a library of sometimes up to 20,000 words and spotting patterns or words that children use which the software thinks are signs of harm or radicalization or potentially at risk of becoming a gang member. Now, we've got no oversight how accurate those software are. What's the error rates? Are they spotting lots of things that are just simply mistakes? And what happens when a child is flagged as a potential gang member? Who sees that information? Where does it go? Does the company keep it? Is it seen only by the school? What flags is that then feeding into other systems like the police gangs matrix or um, other software for the prevent program and how is that being used and how long is it kept so we think schools need to be much more transparent about the use of that kind of tool and really start to tell parents you know what are they tracking who's got access to it and for how long Schools uh, really, you know, do have a, an important role to play here, but parents can also start to ask a little bit more and school governors should be challenging that as part of any new software integration. And school governors should be asking those questions as part of the implementation of any new software before it uh, is, is made and making sure that parents are told and well informed what's going to be collected. Unlike, for example, an academy in Birmingham recently, they installed 24-7, 360 degree cameras in every classroom. Is that really necessary? Should your child be on a camera recorded every single thing they're doing all day? And again, which teachers or which staff or how is the company viewing that and how long are they keeping it for? And what kind of chilling effect does it have on children if they don't want to be seen on camera talking to somebody or flirting or having a chat and everything that's normal to teenage everyday life and we shouldn't make teenagers feel that they're watched all the time putting them under a real sort of sense of pressure that even quite quite normal things could be seen as somehow wrong or misunderstood or seen by other people that we think there should be much more sort of transparency when people are introducing new systems to schools to think is this really in the best interest of the child? Is it impinging on their rights? Is it something that they're going to have to live with for the rest of their life if they get this kind of profiles built about them? And really put those hard questions onto paper um, and uh, make sure they've got good answers to them before they can justify those kind of infringements on, on rights. Well, I hope lots and lots of uh, pupils or former pupils are listening to this and going to reclaim all their data. I've suddenly realised that there's definitely... A, a, I've, I've been trying to get my daughter to keep her socks and gloves on for ages. She keeps flinging them on the street. And now I, there's a reason to keep her gloves on <laughs> all the way through. Um, so I, I wanted to ask... Well, the question that I ask all uh, inter interviewees on this show um, is that obviously you, you've mentioned Pippa King and obviously uh, Defend Digital Me. Um, apart from yourself, um, what other campaigns, activists, writers would you recommend listeners follow? or read up on um, to do with data privacy and protection? Who do you go to um, for information? Oh, well, great question. Um, there's a huge amount of facial recognition starting up in the UK. Um, increasingly, whether it's from shops and shopping malls to the police to uh, just being used on crowds at um, concerts and, and 
sporting events. Um, so if you want to know more about that, um, you can follow Big Brother Watch, um, and they are on Twitter and uh, on the internet. Um, we, uh, for you looking at sort of how a bit more academically, perhaps information, uh, you can look at um, the University of Winchester. There's uh, Emma Nottingham does some uh, great work there, and. Um, but there's actually for, for kids and young people, if you want to start getting them engaged with some of these questions, there's some great fiction out there. Um, and you can look at like Little Brother, written by Cory Doctorow, uh, which is about a 17 year old and uh, in school and how he gets around the surveillance systems of the school and um, what information is collected uh, as you pass things in the street uh, great story great fun uh, or his book walk away which is probably for a little bit older children um and also uh, laura tisdale uh, or uh, laura tisdale wrote a book called echoes came out last year um which features a girl as the uh, protagonist as a main character um and her exploits of uh, being a white hat hacker so a hacker for good um and how she gets on with uh, some of the adventures she has with a, a, a family and a uh, really interesting sort of approach to understanding how some of these systems are used by, by the surveillance state, by companies, um, how they can be hacked and all sorts of things. So perhaps for, for young people, it's much more fun to, to read about this stuff as fiction, um, but be alert that a lot of what they're talking about is very real. And the other group working towards better data confidentiality is Med Confidential. They work in uh, trying to make people much more aware of how their health data are used in the NHS and across the system. And they have a website, medconfidential.org, and they're also on Twitter. So I'd recommend people follow that, especially with the new opt-out system that's available, and follow them for the latest news and what they can do to make sure their rights are respected. Thanks to Jen for the chat. Uh, you can find Defend Digital Me on Twitter at Defend Digital Me. And their website with all current campaigns on it is at defenddigitalme.com. You can also find Jen's own account at the ABB and her website and blog at Jen Pearson. That's P-E-R-S-S-O-N.com. All the other links Jen mentions will be up on the website and do also check out Against Borders for Children who campaigned against the collection of school children's nationalities and whilst they did win, it's still an issue and their site is at schoolsabc.net um, It's also got very useful stuff on boycotting the school census uh, You can also find them on Twitter at schools underscore ABC too and if you go all the way back to episode 58 I interviewed Gracie Bradley from their organisation on that episode is there anyone you want me to talk to? For the podcast, I mean, not my own therapy needs or well-being, obviously. Um, is there anyone you'd like me to interview? Again, for my podcast, uh, not for a job as my PA that pays only in crisps and this level of bants. Yes, no one's applied for it as of yet, but one day. But if you've got any suggestions for podcasts or subjects to find a podcast for, drop me a line at Paul Pobro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can engrave it on a stone tablet and have an ancient Egyptian courier transport it by foot to me. But I'll be honest, I'm so bad at signing my name on those touchpads, I've no idea how I'd do it in stone, so it'd probably just get returned to sender and then everyone would be sad. As always, it's probably just best to email. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Cheers for your ears, and please, if you can, review the show or donate to the Patreon or Ko-fi, or even, just even, the very minimalist, like Yayo Kasumiya podcast listeners, just tweet FB Instagram Carrier Pigeon or use your mouth cavern to spread the word about this show and let others know that it's worth checking out. 
thanking you. Also, big thanks to Acast for preserving this show in its sound jar full of pod brine. Thanks to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all his musics, and to Cat Day for typing up all the linear notes for the website, as she does every single week. This will be back next week when... Oh, who the fuck knows? What's the point? Bye! This week's show is brought to you by the Cabinet Pizza Club. Give us a call and we'll ask if you want a pizza or not and no other questions as that's all we need to be able to deliver you a pizza we think you've always wanted. If your pizza doesn't arrive within 30 minutes, then that's your fault for not believing in it enough. Call us at Cabinet Pizza Club now, where all our pizza ideas are stuffed, but we'll insist it's worth trying them anyway, even if we only intend to give you a very small slice. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.